basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. OMP? Go. AFC? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. In the last episode, we talked about some of the headwinds that NASA's Gemini program encountered after it got off to a fairly fast start in 1962. We noted that despite getting up and running quickly, the program rapidly encountered some significant technical and financial challenges that kept pushing the date of its first launch farther and farther out until after more than a year of operations, the program was actually no closer to launch than it had thought it was at the very beginning. In the last episode, we took at one of the particular challenges that Gemini faced, one that, in fact, it never actually solved, and which, as a result, became a bit of a historical footnote in the space program, and that was the paraglider recovery system. Now, there are lots of other interesting technical challenges that Gemini had to overcome, but today I want to take a little bit of a side tour um, into the whole topic of testing. I touched on this a little in the last episode, but I think it's worth taking a bit of a deeper dive into the subject. I don't think you can really appreciate why Gemini, and to one extent or another all space projects, take so long and cost so much if you don't understand the approach that Gemini and many later space programs have taken to testing. Um, to get to grips with that approach, I think it's useful to think about the context of the Gemini program uh, specifically, though. As we know, it was the immediate successor to the Mercury program. Now, Project Mercury, as it had been known for most of its life, was, by the time that Gemini was up and running, uh, seen as a pretty big success story. John Glenn orbited the Earth in February 1962, just as the Gemini project office was getting settled in to their new office space in Houston near the site of the new manned space flight center. But um, in the early days, Project Mercury had not gone nearly as smoothly, and in fact, Mercury had endured some pretty significant and very public failures on the launch pad, including the infamous four-inch flight in November of 1960, which we talked about in an earlier episode. Now, it's not documented anywhere specifically, but I really think that the early experience of Project Mercury colored NASA's approach to designing, developing, testing, and flying rockets, um, certainly on Gemini and even into the Apollo program and beyond. And specifically, I'm pretty sure that the public nature of those early failures and the fallout from them made a pretty significant impression on the NASA managers and senior engineers in what was then NASA's space task group. I really do suspect that having one's rocket referred to as Stay Putnik left a lasting impression in the minds of many at NASA. And as a result, I think NASA and NASA's contractors adopted an attitude that they needed to be much more realistic about expecting failures to occur during development, and they needed to make sure that those failures occurred earlier in development, and critically, out of the public eye. One of the principal ways of doing this was to significantly e increase the number, frequency, and fidelity of tests prior to the actual launch. In particular, uh, there was clearly a philosophy that once the design had been frozen and hardware was being built, 
literally every phase of building and integration would be followed by a round of testing to ensure that no new um, failure modes had been introduced by whatever changes had been made. In fact, um, it was this philosophy which kind of eventually caused so much frustration amongst the Mercury spacecraft engineers, because that capsule was such a jigsaw puzzle of systems and wiring harnesses that they were literally could not change or even access anything without having to access several other systems in the capsule to the point that literally any operation needed to be followed by a test of the whole capsule pretty much from the ground up. And, of course, these were serious formal tests, which means that every step needed to be planned ahead of time and performed in sequence. Not only that, but the tests had to be performed in front of witnesses, either from internal quality control or for really important tests with customer representatives. Those witnesses probably would have been required to formally verify each step as it was performed. Now, when I was doing this, QC representatives came equipped with a QC stamp, which was a little circular rubber stamp that they would apply to the test procedure after they had verified each step as it was performed. For really formal tests, I think they probably actually added their initials to the stamp mark. Now, given that some of these tests probably ran to hundreds, if not thousands of steps, and involved test teams in the tens or even hundreds, you can imagine how much time and how much effort they required. In fact, it's probably not an exaggeration to say that more time was spent in testing than in any other activity, at least on the Gemini program from what I can tell. And it's actually probably fairly true on a lot of space programs today. Now, over the years since Gemini, the level and formality of testing, I think, has generally decreased as other ways have been found to get confident that things are going to work as expected. In fact, these days, uh, 2022, one of the major revolutions in the space business as spacecraft gets smaller and much cheaper and much more numerous is to find ways to ensure that they are reliable with much, much, much less testing than we're used to doing. But that's kind of a topic for another day. So let's get back to Gemini, or Gemini. To get a feeling for the philosophy of testing on Gemini, it's instructive to take a look at the process of getting ready for the first Gemini flight. Now, now we'll come back to the actual flight uh, in a later episode, um, but because this is the one process flow that I have found that is well documented, I just want to go through it uh, from start to finish to show exactly how much testing was involved in getting uh, a spacecraft built and off the ground. First of all, it's important actually to understand that the first flight of the Gemini program was not actually a Gemini flight. It was actually dubbed a Gemini launch vehicle test and was intended to be a test that would verify that the Titan launch vehicle could actually perform the function required of it, which was to get the Gemini capsule safely into orbit. Uh, why and how this became a significant cause for concern is something that we'll probably talk about maybe next episode. Suffice it to say that by the spring of 1963, it was a concern, though. Uh, and so it was decided to make the first launch unmanned and with essentially kind of a dummy capsule that matched the real Gemini capsule mechanically and structurally, but which was not a fully functional spacecraft. To be fair, the other reason for doing the flight this way was that the Titan Gemini booster was going to be ready for flight before the fully functional Gemini capsule was, and so this was kind of a way to get some flight experience without having to wait for the spacecraft to actually be ready. 
and we'll have to talk about that in a later episode as well. For now, but let's just look at this, the final flow, as NASA would say, of the elements of the mission of GLV-1, or Gemini Launch Vehicle. So to put things in context, the final flight program that was announced in April of 1963 was for the GLV-1 to launch late in the fall of 1963, probably December. As I said, the primary objective of the flight was to prove that the booster could launch the Gemini capsule and put it into orbit um, within the constraints imposed by manned spaceflight. Uh, the spacecraft would be unmanned. Its main functions would be to gather and report data. Uh, it would match a regular Gemini spacecraft in terms of weight and balance and other mechanical parameters. The only way in which it differed from the later capsules was that the heat shield had large holes bored in it so that it would not actually protect the spacecraft during reentry. Instead, it would burn up in the Earth's atmosphere at the end of the flight. McDonnell Aircraft began its own final testing of Spacecraft 1 at its St. Louis plant in early July of 1963. Now, this wasn't fully integrated testing. They weren't testing the whole spacecraft. Um, it hadn't even been assembled at the time. This was actually just testing all of the modules that were ready to assemble to ensure that they were working before they actually put them together. Uh, even though the capsule contained nowhere near the amount of equipment that a fully functional spacecraft would have, uh, there were still a number of small discrepancies and test failures that meant that the testing had to be suspended while parts were replaced and reworked, and testing was actually not completed until late August, at which point the capsule was finally assembled for the first time. Now, once it was assembled, it, of course, had to be tested again. First of all, to ensure that all of the subsystems still functioned once they were assembled together and that nothing had broken during assembly, and also to ensure that it functioned as a whole, as it was expected to. Uh, these tests included the standard triumvirate of Vibe Shock and TVAC, or Shake and Bake, as it is often referred to. This means that the capsule was placed uh, first placed on a massive shaker table and vibrated according to the profile of forces that it was expected to undergo during launch. And then the capsule was transferred to a large uh, thermal vacuum chamber, where it was subjected to the pressures and temperatures that it would experience getting to and being on orbit. Um, the integrated testing went well, but it did last until the very end of September. So, to put that in perspective now, from the moment McDonnell believed that it had design finished designing and building all of the parts of a fully, although dummy, spacecraft, it took three months to produce a fully tested spacecraft that was actually ready to deliver to the customer. Uh, and truthfully, uh, you know, only about a month of that time had been dealing with test failures in their fallout. Two months of that time was just the time that it took to do all of the tests. And nonetheless, accepted by NASA on the 30th of September, the spacecraft was shipped and arrived at the Cape on the 4th of October. Now, meanwhile, the booster for GLV-1 had actually started, started its final preparation for its journey to space even earlier than the spacecraft it was going to carry. The Titan II boosters were assembled in Martin's Baltimore plant, but the boosters were actually built around propellant tanks, one for fuel and one for oxidizer for each of the two stages, so four tanks altogether. These tanks were manufactured in Martin's Denver plant. And the tanks destined for GLV-1 had been shipped from Denver to Baltimore in October of 1962. Of course, uh, before the booster could begin, the tanks had to be tested uh, extensively. 
It took until February of 1963 before they were ready for final inspection, and then only three of them passed. The fourth was returned to Denver, and a replacement was sent out, and that replacement tank was received on the 1st of March. But, of course, the replacement had to undergo testing before assembly could be started. So, in the end, it took until the 21st of May, 1963, before the actual Gemini launch vehicle was assembled and ready to actually start testing. So, basically, the very first test was to check for wiring, wiring continuity, meaning... Was everything connected from top to bottom? This test failed. Worse, the cause turned out to be a short circuit caused by a wiring clamp that had cut through the insulation on some wire. Uh, the problem was that this wiring clamp was the same one that was used throughout the whole booster, which meant, of course, that every other clamp in the whole unit also had to be checked to ensure that they had not caused the same kind of problem. The fact that Martin completed those verifications and was ready once again to begin testing actually two weeks later is actually pretty impressive. I suspect that there were more than a few hours of overtime booked in that process. Now, understand that the, GL the GLV booster uh, was a substantial launch vehicle. It was about 50 meters tall. So, to test it, Martin had built a 56-meter tall test facility at their plant in Baltimore, and the test facility had a three-story blockhouse attached to it to accommodate all of the test and checkout equipment and staff. Now, this test facility was supposed to exactly mimic the launch facility in Florida so that it could be a realistic test of the system. Now, the testing started, of course, with subsystem functional tests and worked its way up to the final combined system acceptance test. The testing, of course, went more slowly than expected, and it was not until early September that this test was complete. By the 11th of September, Martin presented the U.S. Air Force, who was Martin's customer. They actually supplied NASA with the booster. Anyways, Martin presented the U.S. Air Force with the assembled vehicle for acceptance testing, which it failed. Now, apparently, this was actually not that unusual. In contrast to the spacecraft procedure between McDonnell and NASA, where McDonnell involved NASA at all levels of the pre-acceptance testing to kind of ensure that they would pass the acceptance testing easily on the first try, um, the Air Force system was that Martin seemed to have adopted a more incremental approach, where they did their own uh, testing on their own, and they expected to get the most of the way there, but they did expect that the Air Force would find a few issues which they would then correct and resubmit for a second round of testing. And this actually seems to have been standard Air Force practice. Uh, according to Hacker and Grimwood, no booster delivered to the Air Force ever passed inspection on the first try. So, I mean, it's a different approach. And obviously this would mean um, probably that acceptance testing would start sooner than using the NASA approach. But given that it would mean multiple rounds of acceptance testing, and I'm not sure that it actually shortened the whole process at all. Nonetheless, having failed the first test, Martin implemented uh, remedial actions and was ready again for formal acceptance testing by early October, which passed, sort of. The Air Force accepted the booster for shipment to the Cape, but with an extensive list of items that still needed to be uh, worked or implemented before it was ready for launch, but by this time, the launch vehicle schedule was in danger of having an impact on the overall launch schedule, 
So the Air Force accepted the booster so that it could be shipped to Florida and start launch preparation and testing. So to put that in perspective, one full year after the assembly of the booster had started with the shipment of the tanks from Denver, it was finally shipped to Florida to begin its final preparation for its journey to space. The capsule, meanwhile, had arrived at Cape Canaveral on the 4th of October, and, believe it or not, the first thing that NASA did was to take it apart into its major modules, and then retest each one of those again. And then after that, the spacecraft was reassembled, and then put through the whole integrated test again. Why? You know, I'm not actually sure why they did it that way. Um, I guess this is the flip side um, of the difference between the Air Force and the NASA approaches. Having not done a formal inspection and test at McDonald's facility, NASA probably wanted to have its own set of test data on the spacecraft from the ground up. Even though they had all of McDonald's test results, they obviously felt they needed their own set of test data. And even if only to ensure that no issues had arisen kind of under the surface during final integration, testing, and of course, shipment from St. Louis. Um, it seems to some extent that this was a holdover from the Mercury program when the spacecraft was much less modular and frankly, uh, a bit more fragile once it had been assembled. There were just a lot of ways things could go wrong with the Mercury spacecraft that were not obvious. Um, but doing away with this kind of testing was kind of the significant part of the rationale for designing what eventually became the Gemini spacecraft. But I guess, um, you know, at the early stage of Gemini, NASA was clearly not quite ready to move beyond its very conservative testing approach. And so they took it apart and tested it piece by piece and then put it back together again. And then they put the capsule through another series of integrated tests and then they extended the previous testing by putting the capsule through a full simulated flight. So even though this capsule was much simpler than the actual later Gemini spacecraft, it still took until the 12th of February 1964 before all of the testing was declared complete, which meant that formal pre-flight readiness testing could start. Yes, you heard that right. More than seven months after the contractor had declared that the capsule was ready to start the assembly test and delivery process, the spacecraft was delivered ready to start formal testing for flight. Seven months. But mercifully, having spent seven months getting ready for these formal tests, they were actually carried out without incident, and a week later, spacecraft one was declared ready for flight. Uh, or rather, it was ready to be mated to its booster. Booster had arrived at the Cape on the 28th of October. It took another two weeks to install the two sections of the booster in their test stands and prepare it uh, for final preparation, testing, and eventual mating to the spacecraft. Uh, and there was a lot of work to be done before they could get that far. So even by this time, the schedule, which had originally called for a December launch, uh, was clearly not going to work, and the launch date had slipped to February, because of the so slow progress of getting both the capsule and the booster ready. Now, with both items at the Cape, NASA, the Air Force Program Office, the Air Force Test Wing, which was in charge of the Cape, and the contractor teams in Baltimore and Canaveral and St. Louis, all had different versions of how pre-launch testing and checkout were supposed to go. And it actually took a number of weeks to get everyone on the same page. 
much less get everything synchronized between the spacecraft and the booster and the test and the checkout folks. But by the end of November, a new integration and test flow had been agreed by all parties. But as a result of that analysis, um, NASA concluded that the launch would have to be slipped for another two months to around the 1st of April, 1964. And even that date was going to require extra effort. The test crew on the booster moved from working uh, two eight-hour shifts to working two 12-hour shifts starting in November. Still, it took until the new year before the first live test of the booster could actually be performed. In addition to ongoing issues that, had, that were unresolved when the booster had been delivered, new problems were discovered when it turned out that despite the fact that the Baltimore test facility was supposed to be a faithful mock-up of the launch complex in Florida, it wasn't. So interfaces to support equipment that had worked in testing and at the plant weren't compatible with the launch site, which meant redesign and rework and retest. Finally, the team believed they were ready for a full wet test in early January, meaning they were going to load the booster with propellant and actually light the engine. Only to discover, partway through the test, after the propellant had been loaded, that the test procedures were incorrect. So the whole test had to be scrubbed because of the error, meaning that the fuel and the oxidizer had to be unloaded and the test had to be started from scratch. Then they tried to perform the test with some contaminated oxidizer. And then a valve malfunctioned. And then the weather caused a delay because the engine could not be guaranteed to perform within the specifications when the temperature fell below 35 degrees, which it did in mid-January in 1964. Finally, on the 21st of January, almost three months after delivery to the Cape, the booster finally passed a static firing test in which it was judged to have shown that the engines delivered the appropriate amount of thrust and that the guidance and control systems responded, as expected, to commands. So the booster could now start the process of being mated to the capsule. Well, except. Except that a post-firing inspection found a defective rotor in one of the turbo pumps, so it had to be replaced, and the replacement had to come from California. It didn't get to Florida until the 7th of February. So, to recap, by the first week of February, 1964, NASA finally had a spacecraft and a booster that had been in various stages of assembly and test for almost 16 months, but which were finally ready to be mated and launched into space. Almost. Before mating could begin, the booster had to undergo another round of subsystem functional tests. These tests were repeats of the ones that had been done in Baltimore, and the purpose of that testing was to finally, well, likely, ensure that everything was still working nominally after the test firing, which is an event that puts a lot of stress on a rocket. Essentially, these low-level tests would have to be performed, and their results would be compared to the earlier pre-assembly tests to ensure that nothing had basically degraded since the rocket had been assembled and test-fired. Finally, 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 testing was completed, on the 3rd of March, and on that day, Spacecraft 1, which you remember had been ready for mating about two weeks earlier at this point, Spacecraft 1 was finally delivered to the launch complex for mating to its booster. This, of course, set off another round of testing. 
but not only testing of the booster spacecraft and in fact the whole integrated stack, but also testing of all of the associated launch support equipment because of course, a brand new launch complex had been built for Gemini and this was the first time that all of that would be used in anger as well. And this launch complex included a four-story, four-and-a-half-ton white room that literally wrapped around the capsule once it had been fitted atop the booster um, to give the launch preparation crews an easy kind of indoor access to all the systems that they would need for final test and checkout. Well, of course, this white room had multiple mechanical and electrical interfaces to the spacecraft and the booster, and all of these interfaces had to be checked uh, to make sure that they could reliably be used. Nonetheless, pre-mate testing was concluded in just 48 hours, and the final assembly began on the 5th of March, 1964. Now, to give you a flavor of how sensitive the whole enterprise was to small errors, the whole procedure was delayed when a worker dropped a wrench on the dome of the booster's second-stage oxidizer tank. Now, even though the tank was protected by a plastic cover, this necessitated an extensive investigation and analysis to determine if the tank had been damaged. It turned out that there was a scratch on the tank, and I know this because the dimensions down to the thousandth of the inch of the scratch are actually recorded for posterity. Now, it turned out that the scratch could, effectively, be buffed out, though, and the mating operation was allowed to continue. But again, you know, let's take a minute to contemplate this situation. Leaving aside the design and development part of the Gemini project, which we really haven't talked that much about yet, the booster had been on its way to this moment for almost a year and a half, and the spacecraft for over nine months. But a single worker dropping a wrench caused the whole enterprise to come to a halt until it could be demonstrated that the scratch could be buffed out. If that had not been the case some significant portion of the process would have had to have been redone. And I think this is what is meant by space being a high-quality environment, and why, by the way, all tools, down to including pencils and pens, are supposed to be tethered when you're working on a spacecraft. Once the spacecraft was mated mechanically to the booster, the whole stack had to be subjected to a combined systems test and a series of electrical interference tests before you, they could actually be electronically connected. So these tests are essentially would have been done to ensure, A, that the mechanical mating had not broken something, and B, um, to ensure as far as was possible that connecting the plugs was not going to cause some electrical fault that would damage either the booster or the spacecraft. This, of course, assumed that all of the bright new test equipment worked and that the test crew knew how to set up and use it which it didn't, which they didn't. Now, one gets the feeling from reading between the lines that there were a couple of fairly intense days uh, spent reading the expletive-deleted manual, after which the testing finally could get going. Uh, and, of course, there were issues. Some of the electrical circuits were noisy. Uh, it wasn't that they didn't work. It was just that they didn't work as well as they were supposed to. But since these were circuits that controlled the actual steering of the rocket motors during flight, it was not the sort of anomaly that could be ignored. Uh, because, after all of the time and testing that it took to get this far, no one was, or no one should have been, prepared to go on with any doubts that things were going to work on the big day. 
So the test was redone and found to be no better. So testing was put on hold until the issue could be resolved. In the end, a few days of investigation revealed that the problem was actually in the test equipment, which, in fact, was the best possible outcome because it meant that no rework had to be done on the booster itself. Because, of course, if anything had been reworked, it would have had to have been, you guessed it, retested. In fact, since the test equipment was determined to have been at fault, it was actually agreed that testing did not have to be performed again, having already been done twice, in fact. All of that, though, added another two weeks to the schedule. By now, it was late March 1964, but GLV-1 truly entered the home stretch of its journey off the planet. There were still a series of dry and so-called wet tests that had to be performed before the vehicle was declared ready for launch. And there were still a number of tense moments, including the one where someone saw smoke pouring from a switch on the pad. Um, now, unexpected smoke in the vicinity of an assembled rocket is never a good thing, but it turned out that it was a burned-out transformer and switch motor that needed to be replaced. And, of course, there were no stairs on hand. So, an after-midnight scavenger hunt... Um, resulted in someone finding unacceptable replacement parts in other non-essential parts of the facility and pulling those out and putting them, installing them on the pad. And so testing could continue. Finally, after the mission review board, the Air Force Program Office Status Review Team and the Flight Safety Review Board at all, in turn, looked at the test results. Vehicle GLV-1 was approved for launch on the 7th of April. 1964. Launch was scheduled for the next day on the 8th of April, 1964. So again, let's take a look at that timeline. By this time, it had been more than 16 months since the tanks had been shipped from Martin's Denver plant to Martin's Baltimore plant to start the construction of the booster. It had been nine months since McDonnell had started building the spacecraft and it wasn't even a fully functional spacecraft. It had taken all of that time to get to the pad and be ready to launch. Now, it's true that the testing program had been thorough, and, you know, and maybe even redundant at times. But, to be clear, for that first flight, there was no one, at least no one who was willing to go on record, who claimed that too much testing had been done. The plain fact of the matter is that, at that time, and given the challenges the program faced, it was genuinely felt that the time, and let's face it, the massive amounts of money that was spent on testing was absolutely required in order to make sure that problems were discovered before launch, and before they became obvious to anyone outside the program. And when we look back on Gemini, and even Apollo, and in fact, maybe even some later space programs that I'm more intimately familiar with, and realized the kind of constraints on certainty they imposed on themselves, the wonder maybe shouldn't be how long they took and how much they cost. Maybe the wonder should be um, that they managed to get off the ground as quickly as they did. To be sure, there were lots of delays because mistakes were made, and because tasks were sometimes executed poorly. But I guess maybe that's the point of the testing approach. It, uh, it was assumed that things were going to go wrong. It was assumed that they would go wrong in ways that could not be anticipated. In fact, the whole testing program was set up to protect the program. 
by going through things so many times and finding, giving them so many opportunities to go wrong that by the end of it, all of those things would be found. And, and in fact, you know, that was borne out by the fact that testing really did kind of accelerate at the end. Essentially, the whole point of the testing program was to try and ensure that anyone who was responsible for any major part or even minor part of the mission, when asked if their system was going to perform, they would be able to say, go flight, and not, geez, I hope so. All right, well, we finally arrived at the launch of the first Gemini mission. And even though we have not fully explored all of the issues and challenges along the way, I think that's where we're going to have to leave it for today. I promise that next time we will get Gemini off the planet. We will, at least once. For now, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.